So the title of this talk is um, Inspiring Heroes, the Gifts of the Holy Spirit and the Life of the Christian. When we read through the scriptures, you can't help but be struck by the fact that the Holy Spirit is mentioned like in all over the scriptures um, and often in dramatic, uh, in dramatic language. He seems to, in the scriptures, be meant to form a particular and mysterious part of our lives. So let me run through some quotations. Our Lord, and this is from John, our Lord said, As the scripture has said, out of the believer's heart shall flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the spirit, which believers in him were to receive. For as yet there was no spirit, because Jesus was not yet glorified. In the Last Supper discourse, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I have said to you. He reiterates this a couple chapters later, still in the Last Supper discourse. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own, but will speak whatever he hears. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And then after the resurrection, when he appears to the uh, apostles in the locked room, the disciples in the locked room, he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. So it's almost like what he was telling them at the Last Supper discourse, he gives to them then. And then, of course, there's the also the dramatic coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Now Paul confirms what Jesus said, that he's, he experiences this in the life of the early church. And he says um, things like in Romans, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received a spirit of adoption when we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. This, um, I guess this also fits, it's fitting that Christians have a very active and maybe dramatic role for the Holy Spirit in our lives um, because it seems that also that was true of our Lord himself. So Luke says about our Lord at one point, at that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Oh, actually, yeah. Because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. So Jesus himself um, experienced the Holy Spirit he is described as um, almost the offspring of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit overshadowed Our Lady, and that is why he was called holy, according to the angel. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit at baptism. He was full of this, love this one. Um, as, after his baptism, he was full of the Spirit and was driven by the Spirit into the desert to be, to be tempted. Um, I think that the, in Latin, that's like agibator, driven. Um, like you drive a team. So um, this is something that 
our Lord experienced himself was the Holy Spirit apparently in a, some sort of very active and dramatic way um, uh, being a part of his life and even a directive part of his life. When he said that he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and he said, you, I rejoice because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have, have revealed them to infants, Paul also sort of echoes that or, or tells us that that's, he sees that coming to being when he says to the Corinthians, among the mature we do speak wisdom, though it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to perish, but we speak God's wisdom, secret and hidden, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. As it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the human heart conceived, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit that is from God, so we may understand the gifts bestowed on us by God. Um, and then even more, let's see, with our Lord, we see um, that even more than, let's see, in a more determinate way, even more than just wisdom filled our Lord in terms of the Holy Spirit. Because that drawing on Isaiah 11, which was um, at the beginning of Isaiah 11, the prophecy about our Lord, a shoot shall come out of the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall go out, grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. So it's not just sort of the Holy Spirit in a general way, but in these very different aspects of his life, it seems that the spirit filled him in these ways. And um, since we as Christians are partakers in Christ and in his life, it's fitting that we also experience the Holy Spirit in the kinds of distinct ways that Isaiah mentions there. At least that seems to be the way that the fathers um, appropriated this text of Isaiah. They, um, they tended to see this text of Isaiah as revealing a lot about the Christian life. In a particular way, the development, uh, it's connected to understanding development in the Christian life, growth in the Christian life, um, and achieving excellence in the Christian life. So in one of, uh, one of my favorite texts in the program, and one of the texts that in some ways maybe um, gives us a great, um, most give us a great context for our work in the program, it's a uh, in uh, St. Augustine's On Christian Doctrine, Book 2, Chapter 7, when St. Augustine is sort of asking, you guys spent some time on that? Good. Um, that St. Augustine sort of seems to be asking, I'm going to teach you how to read the scriptures, but why are we doing this? And he then locates the study of the scriptures within a progress in the Christian life, which progress he sees as following from, as beginning with the fear of the Lord, and following the steps of the whole of the uh, laid out in um, in Isaiah, culminating in wisdom, and he parallels it with the Beatitudes, starting with poverty of spirit, and culminating in 
being um, uh, peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. So it goes something like this. Um, fear drives us to the scriptures as we recognize we are poor and we need God. So blessed are the poor. Piety um, gives us a proper reverence. It makes us meek before the lashings that we're going to receive from scripture. Knowledge, the gift of knowledge, convinces us of our misery and drives us to our knees and then we are mourning for our sins. That's what the scriptures, scriptures that's the first thing it says that they, they do for us. Fortitude gives us the strength that in spite of our miseries, which the scriptures are revealing to us, to strive, the courage to strive for the eternal anyway, to hunger and thirst for righteousness um, on an eternal level. We, the failure to be able to reach those heights that the gift of fortitude inspires in us um, counsels us, the gift of counsel, to interestingly learn mercy. So he connects the gift of counsel here with blessed are the merciful. Learning, if you want to, if you want to come to understanding and wisdom, he says go by an indirect route. <laughs> learn to love your neighbor. Learn, purge yourself so that you love your neighbors perfectly. Learn to, um, even to love your enemies. And then your heart will be purified. Blessed are the pure in heart to understand God connected with the gift of understanding. And then finally, you will achieve the peace of wisdom. Blessed are the peacemakers and, the, and um, the, the gift of wisdom, which culminates, which is the top of the gifts. Um, so I just, um, I, I wanted to go through that because I love it so much. <laughs> but also, it shows you the way in which the fathers would see these things and say, oh, these aren't just sort of random orderings. They're actually teaching us about the Christian life and its development. And those spirits in Isaiah are revealing to us um, uh, a real part of a, a kind of a, a template for our growth in the, in the, spirit, in the life of the Spirit. St. Gregory uh, the Great, in his uh, Moralia and Job, which is um, something St. Thomas draws upon all the time, he also treated the, what he called the gifts of the Holy Spirit um, as related to Christian advancement, Christian perfection, though he tended to see them as all the gifts represent are something that's active in a higher, higher uh, stage of development compared to the cardinal virtues, prudence, uh, justice, fortitude, and temperance, which are at a more uh, beginning stage of spiritual advancement. Okay, so this is all kind of background for what I really want to talk about. Um, uh, and it was background, in a way, for the medieval scholastics who, went, who got really energized by the rediscovery of a lot of Aristotle's works in the 12th and 13th century and uh, that were translated into, from Greek or from the Arabic into uh, Latin. And one of the first things that they recovered was the posterior analytics, and they said, you know, kind of, wow, that's the way, that's science. That's the way science is supposed to be. That's what real knowledge is. So they, that energized them to want to take all of the wealth of um, inheritance from scripture 
and the fathers and all other learning and use the template from the posterior analytics to turn, to, to give, to put theology into the form of a science, of a demonstrative science. And they, um, that included trying to rethink through all that, they had, all that they had received in terms of revelation about the Christian life and how the Christian life is to be led, to turn that into a science. Uh, and they were, you know, I guess a little bit later in the, in the middle of the 13th century, when Thomas was a young man, um, the ethics of Aristotle were translated into Latin. And so that became available to help, the ethics and the politics became available to help them try to organize, understand the Christian life in a way organized according, as a science, um, like um, uh, the Pusher Analytics help us to understand. And um, Thomas, Thomas's accomplishment of that and sort of the greatest presentation of that is in the Summa, in the Secunda Pars of the Summa, is a masterful gathering together and organization of all of that, uh, all of that rich inheritance. I think that the moral life, organizing the moral life and trying to understand that in a, in a complete systematic way was harder than any, I mean, I'll say, it looks harder at least as a task than uh, anything else in theology because they had so much to draw upon. They had all of the scriptures, including, you know, the books, all the books of wisdom, the, you know, Proverbs goes on forever, the book of wisdom, Ecclesiasticus goes on forever. They had all the things in the gospels that our Lord talked about all of his examples, and then they had, of course, um, much of St. Paul, many of the, 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 the um, accounts of Christian life that St. Paul gives. They had to bring all that together. The fathers of the church, their homilies, their commentaries, Ambrose, Augustine, St. Gregory, Pseudo-Dionysius, and then pagan authors who they found illuminating, like Seneca, and Cicero, as well as Aristotle and um, Neo, the Neoplatonist, uh, the Neoplatonic tradition. So Thomas took all of that, and it, he didn't do it just, uh, he didn't spring out of nowhere. There's, you know, they worked for quite a while at trying to do this well. He did it in a masterful and complete way in the Secunda Pars. And one of the things I hope that comes from this talk is introducing you a bit to, to parts of the Secunda Pars that we don't read in the program, um, and which I find that Many seniors who want to write their theses on moral questions, they tend to not go as much to Aristotle, at least not at first. They go to St. Thomas in the Secunda Pars, then you start reading a lot of articles, and you're, it's, it's, uh, it's difficult to just jump into the middle of the Secunda Pars. So um, I encourage you to read through these, uh, to, to become familiar with it. Okay, so um, one of the important aspects of making, taking all of this and making to a science is to distinguish things and order them. So, um, this uh, Aristotle and the ethics, I'm not going to go into all of it, but uh, into all of the order, but um, an important part of that is to look at the virtues as principles of, of, activity that will bring about happiness 
And to be able to, and to see them in distinction, to see them in distinction from one another, to see them in distinction from other kinds of habits that affect our lives, so to distinguish them from the vices, to distinguish them from continence and incontinence, um, to be able to explain those distinctions so that they can be ordered. And the, um, so I want to talk a little bit about that, about um, ways that, that these kinds of interior um, characteristics that, af that affect a person's life, uh, ways in which they're distinguished from one another, which will be helpful in, in looking at the gifts more, uh, more determinedly later on. So um, first of all, to distinguish the, um, the virtues from one another, um, Aristotle would uh, start by distinguishing them according to their object, according to what kinds of things uh, if, uh, that sort of activity that the virtues perfect uh, are engaged with. So um, fear and rashness, the objects of fear and objects that evoke fear or lead us to be rash, um, particularly sudden death, that distinguishes, that's the beginning of the distinction of courage or fortitude from temperance, which deals with um, pleasures, objects of pleasure, of, of, um, yeah, of tactile pleasure that, um, that cause us to desire or be afraid, mostly desire. Yeah. Um, so that, that sort of divides the realm of human activity that those things are, uh, those virtues perfect. And so helps us to distinguish those virtues from one another. So they're distinguished by object, which uh, evokes certain kinds of activities. The virtues are there to perfect our activities with regard to them. And so, and the perfection for those virtues is, is in achieving a mean. So they become perfected by achieving a mean. So the mean of the virtues also distinguish them. What, what does it mean to be in the middle for when you're dealing with fear and rashness or when you're dealing with, um, when you're dealing with um, desires for tactile pleasures? The mean distinguishes the virtues also from vices that are related to the same matter. The vices are either excessive or deficient. The virtues help us to act in the mean neither excessively nor defectively. Now, so that helps us to distinguish. The object helps to distinguish the virtues from one another. The mean helps us to distinguish also the virtues from the vices. But then, uh, and that, that uh, takes up most of books three through six in the ethics. But then in book seven, Aristotle says, well, you also have to distinguish the virtues from other interior characteristics which lead us to good activity in in concerning the same object or the same kinds of activity. And he says there are two other kinds that he, that he brings up. There's continence. So to be continent leads you to do good activity as a rule, just like the virtues do. There's also another one heroic virtue, um, which, let's see, oh, there it is, okay, 
So here's what Aristotle says about heroic virtue. Heroic virtue, he says, there are besides the virtue of the ordinary man, there is a superhuman virtue, a virtue heroic and godlike. And thus Homer depicts Priam saying of Hector, he seemed not to be a child of a mortal man, but of a god. So Hector and the heroes in the Iliad, they had virtues, they had excellences, which led them to undertake great activities. But the kinds of things that they did are not the kinds of things that the ordinary virtuous man should undertake. They pick up stones that no two men could heave today, right? And they throw the, the javelins uh, the way that no ten men could throw today. Uh, and they, um, uh, a single man of heroic virtue, for him to attack ten other men by himself, that's just a day's work. Whereas for the man of ordinary virtue, that would be rash to do. So he says, yeah, they're, they're courageous and they act according to courage, but their courage is of a different kind than that of the ordinary man. And in fact, it's different not by object fundamentally, but by the nature, the, kind, the nature which it perfects. So it's because these heroes were demigods, they actually were offsprings of the gods or, or shared in their, in their nature, that when their, their excellent activity was of a higher order than the activity of the ordinary, of the ordinary virtuous man. So, and that also affects what would be the mean of activity. So what's, what's rash and excessive for an ordinary, a person of ordinary virtue is the mean for, a for the son of a god. So now we have, helping us to distinguish these kinds of um, interior principles, we've got object, mean, and also nature now. You have to think about the nature to which this activity is appropriate. And those, so yeah. Now the Neoplatonists, Aristotle says, interestingly enough, that um, he's gonna talk about heroic virtue more later. I don't think he ever did, as far as I know. It was probably secret doctrine that uh, he actually wouldn't publish. But the Neoplatonists ran with this. And so, and they thought about, I think, the way in which at the end of the ethics, Aristotle says there are two kinds of happiness. There's human happiness, which is, which is um, the kind that you, where you live a political life as a citizen of a, of a city. And there's the divine happiness, which the philosopher seeks. The philosopher seeks a kind of happiness which is beyond that of humans, and it's really appropriate, the kind that's appropriate to the gods. So this kind of divine happiness and the, or the life that you might live if you were actually seeking divine happiness rather than just human happiness, we kind of see in Socrates, he pursued only divine wisdom. He had a divine sign, a, 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 an instinct that told him some sort, of, some sort of thing, interior voice or something that said, no, don't do that. That he, that he obeyed. He was provoked to his activity by a divine oracle. He, his virtues were so transcendent that they made Alcibiades fall in love with him instead of, and he became the pursuer of Socrates instead of the pursued. 
there's a great there are a bunch of great quotations from that on Frontages. Let's see. Um, this is what he says. He says, uh, in public I tell you his whole life is one big game, a game of irony. I don't know if any of you have seen him when he was really serious, but I once caught him when he was open like Selena's statues, and I had a glimpse of the figures he keeps hidden within. They were so godlike, so bright and beautiful, so utterly amazing. Here was a man whose strength and wisdom went beyond my wildest dreams. So Alcibiades saw in Socrates a virtuous man, but of a wholly different order, belonging to a wholly different level. And even if you look at the Republic, a wholly different society, a different kind of society. Socrates says uh, near the end of the Republic, actually Glaucon says, um, if the wise man doesn't care about honor, he won't be willing to mind political things. Socrates' answer is, he will in his own city. In heaven, perhaps a pattern is laid up for the man who wants to see and found a city within himself on the basis of what he sees. He would mind the things of this city and no other. Um, Aristotle says about the man who pursues the divine happiness, this man would be dear to the gods if anybody is. So I think the Neoplatonists, they, they see that heroic virtue as appropriate to the divine nature as being the virtue that you see in Socrates, who is pursuing an excellence of activity according to the, divin the divine part of his being with his whole soul and aided by the gods so that he acts in a way that's really more appropriate to the divine and even fits him for a political community that is beyond the human, that would fit him, if possible, to be a citizen of the Republican heaven. So, um, and, yeah. so then the, the Neoplatonists distinguish the, the political virtues, these virtues of the ordinary man which find their culmination in the city, from the purgatorial virtues of somebody who's a philosopher who's seeking wisdom and who commits himself to it wholly from the virtues of the purged spirit, which is a man like Socrates who seems to have attained it all and lives that in a stable way, from the divine virtues, which are the virtues you find in the gods themselves that human beings can never have, but which are the exemplars. Okay, so... When St. Thomas goes to explain the, the virtues which are the principles of the Christian life, he takes all of this into consideration. He distinguishes the virtues according to their object, what kinds of activity they perfect. But then he says, when you look at Christian virtues, particularly the, the virtues, yeah, when you look at the Christian virtues, those Christian virtues, though they sometimes share the same names with the virtues, uh, the cardinal virtues of the, that the pagans recognize, they are of a different order because Christians are really sons of God. Grace have, has made us into sons of God, made us participators in the divine nature. And so the virtues which we exercise have a higher level of perfection than, than the virtues of the pagans. They have a higher mean. And they fit us to be part of the heavenly Jerusalem. 
they make they fit us into being members of God's household. So that kind of life is through these virtues is meant to become comfortable and joyful for us and not the terror that it was for people in the Old Testament whenever the divine come in, comes in. Terror comes in with it. Um, and so um, he sees these, uh, these virtues, peculiarly Christian virtues. They're called the uh, infused moral virtues, which are prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. Those are infused moral virtues are dis- different from the, um, from the pagan virtues of the same kind, even, when they're, even for good pagans. They're different because they're really for the divine. They have higher means. So Christians do things that look crazy, and we are proud of it. Um, Christians embrace martyrdom when you know you're going to die and you're dying for our Lord, you can do that through the virtue, the infused virtue of fortitude. You can do that with joy. We don't just moderate our desires for food and drink. We beat ourselves. We chastise our bodies to bring them into complete subjection to the spirit. So we fast and we, well, some people whip themselves and things like that. But you go, uh, the Dominicans did that. They all got the little, like that. Um, So you do kind of crazy things that would look crazy to a very good Greek or Roman, but these are appropriate activities for the Christian. I'm not telling you to go out and beat yourself, but that kind of thing does. um, What looks excessive is virtuous for us because it's, preparing us and fitting us for the divine that we belong to. Um, now, it also kind of affects, sorry, the other, the other virtues which are significant in this regard are the theological virtues. So faith, hope, and charity are believing, hoping, and loving are foundational virtues for the Christian. They're not even virtues that are... Uh, listed for Aristotle. Love is maybe a kind of virtue, but um, faith and hope aren't even considered as virtues. These are themselves directly, faith, hope, and charity are directly participation in God's knowledge, power, and goodness. Okay, so that's kind of a real quick summary of St. Thomas's approach to the Christian life and the Christian virtues that you'll find in this in the Secunda Pars. Now, looking at the role of the gifts, how do the gifts of the Spirit fit into that life? St. Thomas uh, tr- approaches this in question 68 of the first part of the second part, the Primus Secundae. And he first begins by just saying, are they really different? Are those seven uh, spirit uh, gifts different from the virtues or not? There's a lot of confusion, he thinks, because people were thinking about them as gifts under that name, and they really weren't looking back at the scriptural source, the source in Isaiah himself. Where Isaiah calls them, or connect calls them spirits. So St. Thomas says, if you really want to understand the gifts, you have to see that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are connected to the inspiration, the spirit as inspiring us. Inspiring us and 
he uh, uses even instinct. He actually tends to use that word more often. The gifts are in us as in perfections, interior perfections that make us docile to the instincts in us that arise from the Holy Spirit, from the inspirations or instincts that arise from the Holy Spirit. Um, they're habits because you need to be, um, you need to learn to be docile, to be attentive and to be docile to the inspirations of the Holy Spirit. So these are habits that, um, may, that help, us, uh, help us be aware of them, distinguish them, and follow them, respond to them. He says it's like a teacher, I mean like students. Students, better students, ones that are better disposed, are able to be taught more, taught higher things and taught faster. The gifts dispose us that way. They make us disciples to the Holy Spirit by making us respond to his inspirations or instincts. The gifts, um, the gifts overlap with the virtues. They have the same kinds of activities that they perfect. But they're not different by a mean that they put into activity because the activity doesn't really come from us. The activity comes from the Holy Spirit. We're just, we're just allowing that to happen and, and, and responding to it. They're different, though. They really are different from the virtues because the virtues make us docile to reason. The gifts make us docile to the instincts of the Holy Spirit. Now then a question comes up, are they habits? But a pri like are, they, are they stable dispositions in us? Or are they something that just kind of comes and goes when the inspirations come? But he first, and before addressing that question, he asks, are they necessary? Are the gifts of the Holy Spirit necessary for salvation? And that's the text I have, I've handed out to you is that article. Um, he starts out by, uh, so the question would be, are they necessary for salvation? Do we have to have these, um, sorry. First he says, they're as necessary as, those ins as the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is, as the instincts of the Holy Spirit. So how necessary is it for our salvation that the Holy Spirit be inspiring us? Is that something that happens only to some and not to others? Only at some times in your life and not at other times of your life? Only if you've achieved a kind of perfection, but not from the very beginning? St. Thomas says no. The, the inspirations are necessary always, which might be surprising. Um, he starts out in the said contra by saying, well, look, wisdom's, uh, wisdom's necessary for salvation because God loves no one but him who dwells with wisdom. And fear is necessary because he who is without fear cannot be justified. So if the top and the bottom of the, of, the, of the gifts are necessary, all of them are going to be necessary for salvation. Then he explains why. Why is it that they're necessary for salvation? And this is in the middle of the first page. He talks, he says, well, we receive the theological virtues and the infused moral virtues. These are higher perfections than 
uh, than ordinary men can have. But they're properly divine, or at least participations in the divine. And for that reason, he says, though they're greater perfections, yet they're not, we don't possess them perfectly. We possess them imperfectly because we're human beings that are being elevated to the divine. And so he says that, um, he, says, he points out, we love and know God imperfectly. Then he goes on to say, now it is evident that anything that has a nature or a form or a virtue perfectly can of itself work according to them, can, uh, can operare per se, can, uh, can work through itself, can work through himself. But, uh, but sorry, excluding the op- not however excluding the operation of God who works inwardly in every nature and every will. On the other hand, that which has a nature or form or virtue imperfectly cannot of itself work unless it be moved by another. So we can't operate, we can't, we can't live virtuous Christian activity. We can't believe hope and love or engage in um, acts of, of chastity and martyrdom or, that, or things that would lead us to that unless we are moved by the Holy Spirit, unless we are moved by his instinct. And this is in a different way than the way in which God operates in every kind of nature. So it's something special. And then he gives two interesting examples. The sun possesses life perfect, uh, sorry, light perfectly and can shine by itself Whereas the moon, which has the nature of life imperfectly, sheds only a borrowed light. Again, a physician who knows the medical art perfectly, who is not yet fully, uh, sorry, uh, can work by himself, but his pupil, who is not yet fully instructed, cannot work by himself, but needs to receive instructions from him. So if you go to a, a, a clinic and there's a medical student treating you, you get a little anxious if the doctor's not there. So the medical student is somebody who's actually got the, begi- the, what he, the art that he has the beginning of is an art of healing. It's the art of medicine. It's not like a nurse who's sort of being trained to be a, uh, an, a cooperator. He's actually being trained to be a doctor and he's beginning to be able to do that. But he can't do that. He can't work that perfectly. He will make big mistakes if he's not being overseen and directed by the doctor who actually has the art. And that's the way that we, in trying to live the, um, the life of Christ, this divine life that we have virtues for, we're, we're going to muck it up badly and seriously unless we are being inspired by the Holy Spirit and are docile to the inspirations of the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on in the next chap- next article to say, and since the inspirations are necessary and the gifts are necessary to make us docile to those inspirations, therefore they must be habitual. These must be things that everybody possesses and they possess them in a permanent and abiding way. Then he goes on to ask the question, I'm going to kind of take up the question, how are the gifts related to the virtues? And... He, he relies upon an analogy, which he, which he mentions in a number of the articles in the rest of the question. The analogy is this. Just as the virtues 
Uh, the moral virtues, particularly thinking, I think, of uh, yeah, the moral virtues, justice, um, temperance, and fortitude, just as they perfect our desires or our appetites by making them docile to reason so that we desire and feel and grow angry uh, in the way that reason, in, in a way that reason uh, teaches us to, that the reason approves of, our mind does. So the gifts perfect all of man in all of his virtues to be docile to the Holy Spirit who leads us. The Holy Spirit, he says, is like, is for us like prudence, like the, like the instincts of reason that come from prudence. So is the Holy Spirit for the whole man, the whole Christian man. So he says, we are led by the Spirit. We must be. We are his instruments. We are his pipe organs, his organa that he plays music on. I guess, a, a beautiful music of the beautiful music of our lives. The gifts make us um, aware of these inspirations, give us trust in those inspirations, and make us comfortable with living a spirit-led way of life way of life and a, and to think in a way that's illuminated by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so this all, I think all that he says about the gifts of the Holy Spirit and their inspirations also sounds very dramatic. It's kind of in keeping with the, with the, the, the spirit drama, dramatic entrances into the, in the scriptures and with, um, yeah, don't know where I was going with that, but anyway, that's good. Okay, so I think it's dramatic, it seems to fit, with that, uh, but then it also fits with, I mean, I guess it really hammers home the essentially mystical character of the Christian life, the hidden character of the Christian life in our most um, intimate decisions and activities and ways of thinking. So then you wonder, well, what is this like? Um, I don't know. Do you guys think you're being inspired by the Holy Spirit all the time, like the sun? is illumining the moon kind of thing. I don't know, maybe, maybe you do, that's great. Um, I'm not entirely sure that I, like, how do you, how, what does it look like? How can we be aware of these things? Um, I'm only gonna give a couple of things that might suggest, uh, might help to address that question without certainly feeling like I even can uh, do a magisterial job on that one. Um, in, oh, one thing that St. Thomas adds near the end is that um, he talks about the ways in which the gifts rule the virtues or are ruled by them. He says the gifts of the Holy Spirit are, since they make us docile to the Holy Spirit, they, we, have to be we have to be connected to God in order to be inspired by the Holy Spirit. The theological virtues connect us directly to God. We believe, hope, and love God himself, and we're sharing in his knowledge, power, and goodness. In a particular way, the Holy Spirit dwells in us in charity, as St. Paul teaches us. So, though, so the theological virtues are the, somehow they're connected with this, those inspirations and how the Holy Spirit inspires us. And 
But then, yeah, but then the gifts themselves, because they, res- because they teach us to respond to those inspirations, they are more perfect than and rule the, the virtues, the, the, the virtues that we have, the intellectual and the moral virtues. So the spirit dwells, us, dwells in us in love. And so then you'd think that, this is what I'll suggest, is that the inspirations, at least one way in which you're aware of them, is when you find that you love something more than you can account for it and that this is holy. Being driven to love, you're being driven to love something of God more than you can understand. And your understanding is trying to catch up to that. So Thomas More in Man for All Seasons, which is one of the greatest movies ever, um, Thomas More, when he's in the jail cell and his family comes to visit him for the last time, and Meg has only, Meg has only been allowed to come and visit him, his daughter has only been allowed to come to visit him um, because she's promised to try to ma- persuade him to take the oath of fidelity or oath, oath of supremacy. Meg finally breaks down and says, um, but, how does it go? But in reason, haven't you done as much as God can reasonably want? St. Thomas's answer is, well, finally, it isn't a matter of reason. Finally, it is a matter of love. And I think that, I don't, I, I'm not sure if Thomas More said that, if that's in the biography or if that's something that uh, Robert Bolton made up, but it's, it's very insightful. I think that you see there that without the love that he had, that, he w- that, was ins- that with which he was inspired, he couldn't understand his martyrdom. He would not have been able to really peaceably embrace it. And in fact, he didn't want to be a martyr. That was not his, his dream in life. He was not an Ignatius of Antioch, bring me to the lions kind of guy. But um, the love that he uh, experienced, the love for God, made him able to see the good of his martyrdom and, make and, and prepare him to accept it peaceably in a way that Meg could not understand. Um, okay. I think I'm just a tiny little bit. Look, I'm right at 45 now, right? Okay, another few minutes. Uh, we're coming to an end here. Um, but I want to give a few more examples. So um, I think also that there's, it's in, when you read novels and probably you think about your own life, it's, it's really kind of normal to have reason in fundamental ways follow your instincts of love and your instincts for life. This is, um, and so if that's right, it seems in this way, the gifts are really elevating what's something that's natural to the human psyche. So in War and Peace, Andre, who's, um, Andre, who has resigned from life because his dreams of glory were completely shattered, Napoleon ended up turning out to be nothing to live for, and then his wife, whom he came back to be reconciled with, died in childbirth, and, so, and he lost everything, and he just like, nope, that's it, I'm not doing any life anymore. He... Um, he then, uh, here's Natasha, whom he doesn't really know, um, out on a balcony, and this reawakens in him a sense of, of life being joyful as a possibility. So then, here's what, uh, the way Tolstoy describes it. 
having awakened to life, sorry, that's mine, having returned from the trip, Prince Andre decided to go to Petersburg in the fall, and that's so he could get involved in doing something, being active in, in bringing about a better society. So he's going to live again. He decided to go to Petersburg in the fall and thought up various reasons for this decision. So the decision comes before the reasons, and it's a response to that, that experience and the renewed uh, loving of life that he, that, he, that he has that he didn't bring to himself. Before, it had been obvious that he would humiliate himself if now, after his lessons in life, he should again believe in the possibility of being useful and the possibility of, of happiness and love. Now, he did not even understand how he could have been convinced by such poor rational arguments as the ones that said life is not worth living. And I think Tolstoy's full of that sort of thing. Um, uh, of course, we couldn't get through this without me talking about Tolkien a little bit. The, um, <laughs> Gandalf. Gandalf, when he's talking to Frodo and, and uh, telling him about the, the great what the ring is and the great danger and everything, and about Gollum, and that they found Gollum and let him live. They didn't kill him. Frodo can't understand why, why, why Gandalf and the elves spared Gollum. Gandalf says two things. One is, you have not seen him. You do not pity him. You have not seen him. And the second was, what you say is just, but, but my heart tells me something else. My heart tells me that Gollum has some role to play in, in, the, in the drama of the ring yet. Later on, Frodo, after having many experiences, coming to Parthgelon where he has to decide whether to take the ring to Minas Tirith, the town of men where it, will, where it could be safer, or go to hell and, and risk taking the ring into the, the, the place of Sauron. He, try, he says to Boromir, who says, we really have to go to Minas Tirith. That's going to be much, much smarter to go there. Frodo says, what you said would be wisdom, but for the warning of my heart, which warns me not to trust in the strength and truth of men. So he comes to be thinking and trusting his heart like Gandalf does. And then when, they, when Frodo and Sam finally encounter Gollum, Frodo says to Gandalf, not there. Now that I see him, I do pity him. Sam, who doesn't have the same instincts, looks at Gollum and cannot ever pity him. So they think that's, that's something like, and whether that to the extent that's natural, supernatural, some of that's both of the going on there, I don't know. Um, let me uh, do one more, one more example, which is St. Thomas himself, um, sorry, St. Thomas was involved in a controversy with people who attacked the, the, Dominica, the Mendicants, the Franciscans and the Dominicans, and in a particular way they attacked the fact that young men were going and joining the Mendicant orders um, quickly. They would say, wow, that's great, and they would join and they would accept them. St. Thomas himself was one of those people who joined the Dominicans suddenly and um, very young. Say so St. Thomas defends this. I mean, their, their claim is, look, they're not taking time to deliberate. They're not listening to their parents. 
they're not following the advice of the wise. St. Thomas answers by saying, well, our Lord himself said in the scriptures to the rich young man, if you would be perfect, do this. So we have the word, the voice of the Lord himself. But that's not it alone. Secondly, he says that there's, they also have, there's an interior prompting of the Holy Spirit. And as Gregory said, unless the, the creator speaks to us both without and within, he's not, he doesn't speak to us by teaching only from out. He has to be speaking by teaching us from within in order for us to understand and respond to the doctrine. And when that happens, when the creator's voice exteriorly expressed is, um, is supported by the interior locution of the Holy Spirit, it must be obeyed immediately. And he says that this isn't even, um, this isn't even violating proper uh, modes of deliberation. For he says, look, Aristotle even recognized that some men are inspired, and when you're inspired, you don't really want to, uh, trying, to trying to think it out humanly is pretty useless. So uh, St. Thomas says, let him blush who calls himself Catholic while handing over to human councils those divinely inspired, which the pagan philosopher asserts they do not need. And St. Thomas was referring to a book that we don't read uh, called The Book of Good Fortune, though it's um, actually drawn from the Eudamian ethics and other, and other ethics that he wrote, in which Aristotle says, well, you know, they're just, some people, they instinctively know what the best way to achieve happiness is. That comes to them as a gift from the gods, the gift from God, who is the one who motivates all of us in our fundamental um, drives towards understanding and, and loving. But for some people, he does it way more. And for them, it's that neither, neither can they give you an account of it, nor would it even be wise for them to try to substitute their own human reasoning for what, um, for what is a, a kind of instinct. And so that's what he says was going, uh, St. Thomas says, well, that's what's going on with these young people who lend himself, who join the Dominicans. They heard the words of the Lord. They had the interior illumination to accept them in their full dramatic character. And so they went. Why would they deliberate any more than that? That's, that's his account. And I'm not saying that you should immediately go and join a monastery. Okay, but I'm <laughs> this is just a report of what Thomas says. Um, so um, let me just conclude in two, uh, by mentioning two things. One is, uh, in the very beginning of the Summa, uh, and I think it's Article 6 of Question 1, when St. Thomas asks whether sacred doctrine is a wisdom or not, he says that he distinguishes the wisdom which is an acquired habit an acqui uh, that we work at, we study to gain, from the wisdom which is a gift, uh, gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, and he says about that, that we're doing, in the Summa, we're doing the, we're pursuing the study, the acquired habit of wisdom. 
the, the gift of the Holy Spirit is something else. And you may think that by distinguishing it, he's sort of saying, well, then you can leave that aside and just do the study of, of sacred doctrine. But I think that it's, it both follows from his overall view of the relationship between the gifts and the virtues, that though they're distinguished, the gift of wisdom is meant to illumine us in ways that guide and direct and confirm the study and make even possible the full study of sacred doctrine that's an acquired habit. So in that text, he says that, um, that if you look at 1 Corinthians 2, this gift of the Holy Spirit, uh, 1 Corinthians 2 says, the spiritual man judges all things. And then he adds a quotation from Dionysius. Herotheus, this is a friend of Dionysius, he was learned not only by, uh, by studying like a student, but also by experiencing the divine things. So it seems like that, uh, that, that's, that gift of wisdom is meant to guide and confirm our own study, our own acquired study of doctrine. And so um, that then, I think the college probably thinks something like that too because of the prayer that we pray every day, every time before class. Maybe you got sick of it, I don't know, but it's, it's all the times. Come Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and enkindle in them the fire of your love. And then if I tweak the translation a little bit, O oh God, who taught the hearts of the faithful by the illumination, illustratione, which isn't even a word in the classical Latin dictionary, illustratione, by the illumination of the Holy Spirit, grant us in the same spirit sapere, to be wise, but it comes from sapor, to taste, maybe to savor, to savor recta, the right things, and ever to rejoice in his consolation. So that's, um, I think that's invoking the gifts of the Holy Spirit so that, it's invoking the Holy Spirit so that he will illuminate us and we become docile to those inspirations. That's meant to, gu to guide everything we do at the college. So, thank you. <laughs>